Welcome to the NATO Sessions, conversating in podcastery with famous smart people. This is a co-production of the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco and its online venue, 3200 Stories. My guest today is Helene Wecker, whose first novel, The Golem and the Genie, was released in April. We spoke at Stageworks Theater in San Francisco. So this, this weekend, um, I took my kid, I have four-year-old twin daughters, and we took them to like a family farm activity, uh, where there's like a, at a teaching farm, and we're on the beach, and uh, I was sitting on the ground, and one of my daughters had like a plank of plywood, and turned suddenly and hit me square in the face. Um, and it was one of those, and I, it's, it still hurts uh, right above my eyebrow, uh, and like my teeth rang, and my head was spinning, and I felt nauseous. Uh, and uh, it was one of those moments that you have a lot as a parent where you're like, oh, so this is who I am. Uh, you know, we're like, I, where I realized, like, I was like, oh, this is what love is, that, that probably with anyone else except my children, my first reflex would be to attack. Uh, but not my, so this is how I know I love my kids. Good to know uh, that I will not attack them when they hit me in the face with a board. Similarly, uh, it turns out that I'm not quite as upset about being shit on as I thought, literally shit on, as I thought that I was before I had kids. These are important character lessons. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Halid Wecker. Hi, thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. Um, so, uh, The Golem and the Genie, your first novel. What was it like to write your first novel? Is this, is this the Jewish Kite Runner? Oh, um, I don't know. Believe it or not, I haven't read The Kite Runner yet. Um, what was it like? It was seven years long, the writing process, so it was sort of everything uh, spread out over seven years. It was um, hard and easy and terrible and not as terrible and then really, really terrible again. So... Uh, it was so pretty grueling. Mostly grueling. degrees of terror. Mostly degrees of, oh, am I nuts? Am I, you know, I am, I am just putting so much energy into writing this book, and it, uh, it just kept getting longer and longer. It was, uh, it was like um, uh, grad students when they're always like, how long is your, your degree? I'm six, week, I'm six months away from the degree. Two months later, I'm six months away from the degree. It just sort of kept doing that. It was like an asymptote. Yes. Uh, so, and, and through seven years of, of mostly or greater or lesser amounts of terrible, what prompted you to persevere? Um, that I felt the story had merit and that um, the four readers I was showing it to, including my mom and my husband, uh, seemed to think I should keep going. Um, and, yeah, just sort of the energy of the book itself. And uh, for, I your book came out last week, right? Tuesday, yeah. Uh, congratulations. Thank you. And uh, so I'm guessing that most of these folks have not read a 480-page novel since Tuesday. <laughs> uh, twice. Twice? Good one. Uh, good one. Uh, Dad? Yeah, right. Uh, you can sign her copy. Um, so, uh, what's the synopsis of what it's uh, what it's about? It's the um, <clears throat> so it's set in 1899 Manhattan, and the story is that a uh, a golem who, um, just in case the audience doesn't know, is is a uh, character in in 
Jewish folklore, so a person built out of clay. Um, and this particular golem is female, uh, arrives in Manhattan without a master at the same time that a genie, um, creature from Muslim and uh, Arabic folklore, uh, arrives in a flask, in a copper flask, and he is accidentally uh, released in Lower Manhattan at the same time. And uh, the both of them sort of wander around trying to figure out how to fit in amongst humans and make their way, and eventually they meet. I, I read, the, read it as sort of essentially existing as a kind of magic realism, mm -hmm. is what it reminded me of. Uh, and so what's your per perspective on sort of how doing literary magic realism is different from other forms of like speculative genre fiction? Um, <clears throat> I think, oh gosh, is it all that's a good capes? question. Sorry? Is it all about the capes? It's not, no, oh, capes. See, um, I feel like there's sort of the tradition of magic realism that is very, um, uh, it, associated with you know Latin American literature and the sort of you know the you know uh, someone called it the, the, the floating grandmother floating abuelita literature that's very um, you know sort of serious and and uh, um, you know I, I, the stuff that I studied in college and this to me is more. Um, I don't know, speculative in that sort of like our world with a twist sort of way. But I, I really did want it to be that, to feel like this could have happened. That it's a real New York. It's not like um, uh, the New York of, of um, A Winter's Tale, Mark Helprint with this, like our New York, but different, our New York, but like skewed 45 degrees in this slightly magical sense or, or like, um, uh, the Britain of um, oh, what's her name of, of Susanna Clarke's Jonathan Strange and Mr. Nora where it's just you start off and it's accepted that magic is real and it exists I wanted this to be like the New York where you know the, the people who lived in our history are these people and they would be just as astonished and taken aback as we would be to discover a golem in their midst and it wouldn't be like oh yeah those golems they just happen right right I mean, what it, in some ways, what it reminded me of, like, I was a big comic book buff as a kid, and one of the funny things about comic books is, like, that their comic book writers, over the course of many decades of producing material, were just were mining everything. Mm -hmm. So you have comic books where, like, there's Thor and Hercules and the Prince of Atlantis mm -hmm. and, like, a Native American sun god, and they're all hanging out. And they just sort of cheat whatever they have to cheat to reconcile all of these cosmologies existing simultaneously. Right. And you had a little bit of that with a Jewish mysticism and some type of Arabic mysticism mm -hmm. matched together. Sort of, how did you construct ground rules for yourself of 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 creating this that, that magical world and? and harmonizing those two traditions? Um, how I constructed the uh, ground rules was sort of as I went and sort of uh, by necessity. Um, I wanted, and, and really sort of with the goal in mind of wanting it to be as real as possible and not wanting to cheat too much. Um, so I have it that they each can understand um, all languages. So I didn't have to sort of make that sort of fuzzy cheat of, well, it's not clear what language they're all speaking in, but everyone just sort of understands each other because that's not true. And that's like one of the 
most fascinating aspects of, of uh, immigrant New York to me at the time, and, and I'm sure still to some extent today, is you could be in your little neighborhood. And, you know, if you were in the Lower East Side, you could speak Yiddish day and night to everyone you met. If you went five blocks to the, to the West, no one would understand a word you were saying, and you'd be, you'd be totally at a loss um, unless you maybe spoke a little English. And you don't do the thing that is so annoying in movies where they're like, anyone who speaks another language speaks English with that accent. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, there were, I was just talking about this the other day with the movie Chocolat and how everyone spoke English, and it's like in, they're in France and, like, she's South American, but... In France, and, and and Johnny Depp is like he's supposed to be like Cajun or something, and right. they like bump into each other. They should be going like, "Okay, qua, what?" Right. Like but they just understand each other, and it just ticked me off. Yeah, well, and I mean, uh, props to you that there was no like like in people who who are buffs about into this into this form of, of story, like get we, we all get very. Uh, persnickety about the ground rules. Mm -hmm. Like, if you want us to suspend our disbelief, you need to be clear about what the parameters are, so yep. that there's no, like, like if the, if if you can reinvent anything, to, there, then none of the plot has any stakes. Right. There, right. And so, like, there's a, uh, uh, you know, there's no like, and then there's a yeti or yep. whatever, and then time travel is possible, yep. like, or you know, or whatever to 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 get out of the. Plot problem. Um, you you wrote. Uh, uh, I read an interview with you where you said that you didn't plot it out meticulously. That you mm -hmm. had an outline and then sort of went from scene to scene to mm -hmm. scene. And that was surprising to me reading the book because it's like I'm someone who likes plot. I don't like novels that have a lot of sad introspection uh. Uh, and standing around. <laughs> so there are great works of literature that I do not get because it's too much. Uh, of that, but like you have these characters sort of careening towards each other, and it's unclear for much of the thing how it's all going to come together. Mm -hmm. um, what was the the process like of working from the outline to writing the scenes, and then working backwards to construct to sort of sharpen the plot? I'm sort of curious about the magic of the revisions. That that sort of backwards forwards process was exactly how it happened. It um, I, I would sort of start at the beginning and get a certain, you know, like two or three chapters in, and then I'll go, oh, wait a minute, I haven't accounted for this, and then go backwards. And write, you know, it was like, and then write forwards and get to maybe like chapter five or six and be like, oh, oh, wait, 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 wait. It has to be that he's actually like this and she's actually like that. Okay, let me go back to the beginning. And so I literally just sort of, it was, it was like laying down thin like layers every time I, I, you know, like a pass after pass after pass. And I would just get a little farther and then come back and then a little farther. And the first time that I wrote the ending was six years after I started the book. And it was terrible. And I had to go back and... Uh, was there a Yeti or time travel? There was no Yeti. There was no time travel. Okay. Um, but, in fact, that might have improved it. Um, but, so then I had to... Never doubt the power of a time traveling Yeti yeah. to save a story. <laughs> traveling, oh, okay. Um, no, so then I had to go back and, and sort of weed out um, the things that were making the ending terrible. And... Uh, and really sort of streamline it and, and compress it down, and, and that ending then worked. Um, and was that exasperating or exciting to like be fine-tuning the layers as you went? 
both. It really was both. Um, and that was sort of the entire process of the book was exciting and exasperating at the same time, I think. Partially because so much of it was research uh, dependent and I would find something out that would be like, oh, oh, so, you know, some, some detail that had escaped me that, oh, it was actually like this. And if I want to be um, sort of uh, um, true to the time, I need to have like this sort of social you know, constraint in place. Well, that screws up the plot device I had over here that would get us from point C to point D. So now I have to rejigger a way to get from point C to point D. And let, so it was sort of like a writing but an engineering project at the same time. There was a lot of, I mean, I, I had a flow chart at one point about of how like everyone had a different shape that really looked like a PowerPoint presentation that was just sort of how they're all going to come Where together. Where all the literature comes from. Yes, exactly. So it, it was it was murder, but it was fun at the same time. Was there any moment where like your things that you learned about real historical New York collided with things that you needed for the plot uh, or the characters, and you had to pick pick a side? Um, yeah, and usually what happened was um, I would sort of internally cry about it for about four hours, and then realize how it could actually make it better. And one of them was um, that the um, neither the golem nor the genie sleep in the book. And I had, uh, it, just because of their natures, they're both, you know, they're creatures that don't need sleep. And so I had them wandering the city um, separately and they were gonna sort of come together and meet at one point. And then I found out that um, if you were a woman in New York in 1899, if you were out walking by yourself, you were considered a prostitute or no better than one. And uh, so you, you really stuck out like a sore thumb, and to use a cliche. And so I was like, darn, you know, she wouldn't do that. That's not something she would do if she knew that she would be, um, you know, sort of, because she doesn't want attention. And she, if, if she knew that that was going to get her attention, she never would do that. But it placed this constraint on her that she sort of fought against, and that was a very interesting development for her character and so that when she and the genie do finally meet it, it set up this idea that he would take her out walking once a week um, so that she could have um, a companion she could have an escort basically and that was um, and then like I had these weekly meetings and that became the structure of the middle part of the book What stories did your family tell you growing up? Like, what kinds of stories were like, these are the stories of our people? Uh, my mom's Ethiopian. She used to tell me, like, folk tales from growing up in Ethiopia. Um, and uh, my dad, from California, he used to tell me uh, stories of when he grew up in California. But more not, true stories, and she, my mom would tell me folk, folk stories. That's, how would you know that? Like, that's a really, question, that's a really good question to ask. Uh, you know, that's... that's uh, like, I'm still, I still, and how you asked me if I was a writer. Uh, it was that you asked everyone, I just had to be the first person. Uh, 
No, well, I'm standing here looking for writers, and I figured standing on Valencia at fucking three o'clock in the afternoon in front of a coffee shop where everyone has their laptop out, my chances were good of running into a writer, and then I've kind of been profiling people uh, as who has like a possibly a writerly look. What kind of stories did your family tell you when you were growing up? Gosh, unfortunately, it's all about being Jewish. <laughs> I think most of my stories were about the Holocaust, and honestly, that really sucked. Uh, what's, what was the funniest story that your parents told you about the Holocaust? Oh, there was no funny stories about the Holocaust. <laughs> it was all about how we had it so shitty. Um, it was just, I think it was just the, uh, I think the, I think the, there's nothing funny about learning about the Holocaust. I can't even think of I suggest you listen to my comedy album, The NATO Green Party, where there's a lot funny about the Holocaust on it. Okay, uh, mine was just more about how the horrors, the more about the horrors of it and, you know, how Jews always have it so bad. <laughs> I grew up also in the Virgin Islands and uh, Jimmy Buffett used to come into this pizza shop where my father specifically uh, was really good friends with the woman who owned it and he used to hang out with Jimmy Buffett. Wait, and why were there Jews in the Virgin Islands? Because they were escaping the Holocaust? No, I'm just joking. Um, <laughs> my dad had his midlife crisis, so he decided to buy a hotel and restaurant in St. Thomas. So, um, I, don't, uh, I don't know that much about the, the source material of the Golub and, and, the, and the genie and mm -hmm. what the folklore and the myth is around them. Could you sort of fill in like what the, what the traditional stories are for, for those characters and how you fleshed them out or departed from them right. for your purposes? Um, for the Golem, the most traditional stories um, that, that are sort of uh, the most often uh, cited are, and told are the stories of Rabbi Lowe um, of Prague um, in, in, in medieval Prague who built a golem uh, named Joseph. I think the, the, in some versions of the story, the golem's name was jo Joseph to protect uh, the Jews of Prague from, uh, from, from pogroms. And Joseph uh, became bigger and bigger and, and, and started to, it went from attacking uh, the, the, the attackers of, of the Jews to attacking the Jews themselves, uh, uh, sort of in the, the grand Frankenstein tradition of, except of course much earlier, of, um, of, of the thing that you create turning against its creator. Um, and the Terminator. Or the, exactly, exactly. Or Gollum is just like Skynet. Um, uh, the uh, replicants, uh -huh. or whenever or you know, Commander Data would go crazy. The Cylons. Yeah, totally the Cylons. <laughs> so uh, yeah, any number of, of those old stories. So uh, so that was um, where that that was the Golem story that I was most familiar with, and the one that most intrigued me. Um, as for uh, the genie, that was well, you know, from what I you know grew up with, sort of in, in Western culture, the received you know sort of uh, stories of, of genies and Aladdin and the lamp, and you know the the Disney movie with you know big blue Robin Williams and um, and I Dream of Genie and all that stuff. But if you go back to the original sources, to the Thousand and One Nights, and to the um, uh, to, to the Quran as well. There, um, 
very diverse and interesting stories. All of the ones from the Arabian Nights, which are all so very different and varied, um, and, and one thing, just sort of to go back to the idea of, of uh, you know, picking and choosing what, what you know, I was going to use for my research. One of the things that I had in the book was that um, my genie, because because they are they are creatures of fire. That is, you know, something that all the stories and the Quran agree on creatures of fire. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, everyone needs their their kryptonite, so mine's going to be water. Like, you know, if, if he gets like doused or submerged in water, he could be extinguished, would be sort of like drowning, except faster. So then I'm like, oh, okay, I got that. And you know, writing this in is is you know his fatal flaw, sort of, and. Um, and then I'm, I'm reading through the Arabian Nights, and here is the story of a, a genie rising from a lake with carrying a, a, a lockbox that had a woman in it. When you said um, your, your question about how to, you know, going about changing and, and altering and, and picking what I wanted, it, it, at first I was really freaked out about it. Um, especially about about the gin, it was like okay, my own my own history I can mess with. You know, I feel like I own that. It's uh, uh, you know golems. I can do whatever I want with golems. I don't want to piss off my in laws. You know, so uh, that was that was hard. Your in laws are genius. No, 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 oh no, it was more like you know just just feeling like taking taking another culture and messing with it. You know, there's a certain hubris that goes with that, and and so I sort of had to. Uh, decide to do it and decide not to be a wuss about it. And, you know, if you take a look at, you know, it, 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 say vampires, you know, how many different kinds of vampires are there out there? You know, the, the, you know garlic or no garlic and sparkles too, and no sparkles. Too, sparkle, many, too Yeah, there's, there's a few at this point. There's sort of a, a crazy number of, of vampire strains. Um, but I just sort of had to decide, okay, these are going to be mine and I'm going to do with them what I will. Um. The, well, and you know, in some ways, the the the, the Jewish side of, of of your book is good at might be useful to remind anti-Semites that when we talk Jewish, sometimes we can kill them. So uh, <laughs> it's a it's a shot across the bow. Um, so the um, the your your in-laws are not genie, but are Syrian. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, yeah, my father-in-law is Syrian. My uh, mother-in-law is is. Uh, uh, a Catholic girl from Chicago, but uh, but yeah, my husband's Arab American. Yeah. Um, and so, it, it, my understanding, or what I read in other interviews, is that you sort of wanted, were interested in the interaction between those two communities, mm-hmm. and in, in telling this story. Could is there something specific that you felt like you wanted to say about the relationship between Jews and Syrians, or Jews and Arab Americans, in in telling this particular story? You know, it's funny. I feel like it's a natural. I've gotten the question a number of times, and it's a natural question, of course, given the the, the book and the and the, um, the peoples in the book. Um, but at the same time, I don't feel that I have a particular message, or at least I can't think of it as a message, because I feel like there's nothing that kills a book deader than a message. Um, and what I have instead are questions. These are, you know, the book is questions that I am asking um, about the lines between uh, peoples and uh, sort of what we are all bringing to America in this, you know, in, in the long history of immigration to, to this country. And um, about, you know, the, the 
tensions between duty and self-determination and between science and faith and doubt. And if, if there is a particular message, and, and it sort of pains me to say that because every, I feel like everything I say from here to the end of the sentence is going to be the mo- is going to be sort of twee and, and, and you know, uh, but, but it's like... This is Valencia Street. We have plenty of... Oh, 20, plenty of twee. Okay, I'll fit it right in. Um, it's the... There are only... you an ironic T-shirt to wear while you say it. <laughs> Someone else's family reunion T-shirt. I'll, I'll just I'll just make the peace sign as I'm talking. Um, is the if the two halves of this book, if the people sort of have the same, if there are reflections across the 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 Arab Americans in this book and the Jewish Americans in this book, if they are have the same concerns and fears, it is because there are only so many types of people in this world, and. Uh, where we run into trouble is when we talk about what they are like, what they want, uh, that they act like this. And so one of the, I, I, I'm a firm believer in, in, in literature being one of the great educators in how um, people can be vastly different and exactly the same at heart at the same time. So that's sort of what I was trying to achieve with this. I, I, yeah, I think I don't, I mean, there's, there, there's, for example, there's something like, like no matter what culture the person's from, there's, there's the universal uh, uh, booby with knickknacks. Yep. Like, no matter where you're an immigrant from, uh-huh. your grandma has knickknacks. Yep. Like, that's, you know, if you are an immigrant. And that's some, for some reason, the accumulation of knickknacks is lost as you assimilate into this country. I don't know why, but that's the rule. Yep. I know nothing about the history of Syrian immigration in the United States. Uh, I know a bit about the Lower East Side and mm-hmm. Jews and whatnot. Um, is that the, what was striking was that was the absence of external prejudice mm-hmm. that that they that they didn't run into nativist bigotry in their meanderings. And and I. Uh, I was found it was curious if that was a choice on your part about sort of what the relationship was between the Jewish and Syrian communities and the rest of New York, except for this one significant character, uh, or if my understanding of the history was wrong and that that there that they actually didn't that there were marauding nativist gangs for them to worry about, and I just perceive marauding nativist gangs wherever I go. <laughs> um. <coughs> My understanding, and you're asking basically if, if, if the Syrians particularly were sort of left alone, if, if they weren't sort of persecuted against as by other New Yorkers, is that sort of yeah. the... Well, I think the nativist gangs, if, you, if like the gangs of New York stuff was a little earlier. earlier. That's like mm-hmm. 1860s, and this was like 1890s to 19... I think the, the sort of heyday of the Syrian immigration was 1890s to 1910s. Um, <clears throat> but... I think they kept, you know, they mostly kept to themselves and it was um, sort of this very industrious sort of community. Everyone thought they were coming over. They were probably just going to make up some money and then go home. 
and every, and they ended up staying as you do, and you know that's how that's how great shifts end up happening. But everyone thought they were Turkish. A lot of people thought they were Turkish. A lot of people thought they were all Muslim, and really the majority of the Syrians in America at that time were Christian. So there was a lot of misunderstanding, um, but not. I didn't come across any uh, sort of um, information about you know, any sort of, you know, huge uh, persecution against them. I'm sure it probably happened on a person-by-person level, but um, not not really as, as far as I know. It could be I was just looking at the wrong sources. Um, Someone will correct me, as, as right. always happens. People will, people will talk shit about you on Twitter. <laughs> what that's for. The part of uh, uh, New York history that was most surprising to me was the rooftop culture. Uh-huh. Uh, was there? Was that a real thing? I, I was. Um, I might have exaggerated it just a little bit, but it was there. Um, that the, the um, rooftop culture being that you could basically get around the city from the rooftops if you wanted to, uh, especially down uh, in, in sort of like the Lower East Side area, um, and that it was a, sort of a, th- a throughway um, for you know if you if you were running away from the police or if you were if you, if you just wanted to like catch a breeze in the middle of the summer you know and, and it was stifling inside those those uh, tenements especially the old tenements that weren't uh, weren't ventilated at all uh, that what everyone did was they dragged their mattresses out to the fire escapes or to the roofs and, and slept there at this point Syria is not a country right at the at 1900 this it's, is the end of the Ottoman Empire uh, Syria is a country but it's bigger than the current Syria it's called greater Syria and it encompasses Lebanon um, I don't think it also encompasses Jordan, but I might be wrong. I can't. I, I'm really terrible at, at history, that sort of details. But um, when uh, the Ottoman Empire uh, sort of fractured in the 20s, was when after that was when Lebanon sort of came off separately. So, so the the, um, the Syrians that were in the U.S. were from the Lebanon Valley mostly. And what was the what was the context of Syrian immigration? I mean, what was what was the, what was the push in the poll? Why were people coming over so much? Yeah. Um, it was sort of a um, uh, not the best time economically. It really was mostly economic. Um, there was a little bit of trying to get out of um, conscription into the Turkish Imperial Army. It was, you could pay your way out, but it was sort of prohibitive uh, for if, if you were, you know, like a farmer's son working, you know, working the family farm. Um, and what happened was there was the 1876 Philadelphia Centennial um, that was sort of like one of like the... Um, you know, one of those grand world fair sort of things. And uh, a delegation of Syrians came over and, and, and saw basically that, that America was this great new country where you could do, you know, there were just tons of business opportunities. You could come make a great, you know, quick buck and go home. And so they went back and, and said, you know, you, you guys might want to check this out over here. And so it was like one person and then two people and then 10 people. And then what happened was, the uh, the uh, American missionaries, the Christian missionaries that were over at the, 
over there at the time sort of encouraged this. And yeah, go to America. And they would write letters of introduction to their parishes back home and, and, and say, in, in English, and say, yeah, go to um, you know, Wichita, go to wherever, and uh, you know, ask for this guy. He'll give you a room, he'll give you a job. And then when you know, someone got there, um, you know, they'd write their cousins and everyone else would come and they'd send home letters just you know, full, of, full of money. And, the old Wichita ruse. The, exactly. <laughs> I've seen it once, I've seen it a thousand times. <laughs> You're from the, the Chicago suburbs? Mm-hmm. What's the town? Libertyville. So my family's also from Chicago suburbs. Do you have the answer, what is up with Midwestern Jews? What is up with Midwestern Jews? Like, there are so many answers to that question. And so many, so many facets of the question itself. So <laughs> what, what in particular well, <laughs> is the upness? Well, you know, suburban Chicago Jews, to me, I mean, and my family's a little bit closer in, like Wilmette, mm-hmm. Highland Park, Northbrook, that part of you Yeah, know. more Gold Coasty. Is that what it's called? Yeah, I think so. All right. <laughs> Duly noted. Uh, uh, so the uh, yeah, Libertyville's up in the sticks. We're we're sort of we're, we're the um, we're the we're the country Jews as far as country Chicago. Jews. Yeah, as far as Chicago I goes. I didn't even know there was such a thing. Yeah. Um, so uh, uh, you know, to me, the, I mean, the thing that's is like like I feel like Midwestern Jews that sort of have the undercurrent of anxiety and and misery and like you know all the sort of cultural pathologies of northeastern Jews uh-huh. with like a midwestern protestant norwegian jolliness layered on top of it yep. that is very confusing uh, for those of us who don't do don't have I grew up here so um, it's it's the proximity to casseroles is it's, all the, the casseroles that are layered with, you know, cream of Campbell's soup and all, and the, the green, the French onions and all of that. It, it adds sort of a layer of, of complacency, sort of that, that uh, sort of maybe mellows you out just a little bit. Absolutely, my grandmother's. Now you nailed it, dude. That my grandmother's brisket recipe yep. was to douse brisket with Lipton onion soup yes. packets. You rub it first. Okay, you take the brisket. And you uh, put some oil on it, canola, and then you take the the, the Lipton, and you open the packet, and you, you spread it all over one side. If you want to get fancy, you take the other packet and do it on the bottom as well. And then you take the Campbell's golden mushroom soup. It has to be golden mushroom, can't be cream of mushroom soup. It's golden mushroom. You pour it over the topping with a spatula. You do this. You're sorry for podcast people. That's a spreading motion. And then you wrap the whole thing in the heavy duty foil. Can't be the regular foil. It has to right. be the heavy duty foil. The industrial grade. Industrial yeah. grade foil. And you bake it. Oh, I should be able to remember this off the top of my head. I just made this for Passover. Oh, probably three fifty for twelve hours, knowing brisket, and there it is. There's dinner. So, uh, yeah, I would, I would, I would do three fifty twelve hours. I would do seven hundred for six hours, <laughs> um, just to cut the time. So, uh, and it's clearly you haven't been in the Bay Area long enough that you're still doing that for your recipes. At a certain point, I like when I learned to cook, I discarded my familial heritage recipes. Um, I've done that with the Whole Foods free-range brisket, believe it or not. I felt like someone was going to come oh, in the door and, and just you like... you got to return that brisket. That's, I know. That's, that's not a respectable use of brisket. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, it's sort res- of the two sides colliding. It's- you got to honor the brisket. <laughs> Am I right, you guys? Come on. 
<laughs> I was not taught how to cook by my Jewish mother either, but when I moved in with my wife, she said, you're not gonna be Mr. Feminist Revolutionary and make me do all the cooking. And I said, well, baby, I don't know how to cook. And she said, and I quote, you can read, bitch, here's a cookbook. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so I cooked my way through enough cookbooks that I became a, uh, a pretty accomplished cook. Um, so have you sold the movie rights yet? Uh, I would make nope. a good Rabbi Meyer, come on. I think in that shirt, especially yeah. with the flames, I think absolutely. Um, the, the, the movie rights are still up for grabs if any of your podcast listeners would like yeah. to buy them. Okay, both of them. <laughs> yes. bids. Um, they can pull their money together. They got credit cards. Right, yeah. Kickstarter it. Um, <laughs> yeah. So thanks, thank you so much. So it was great to talk to Helene Wecker, and after the interview, I was standing in the theater, and a woman came up to me, and she introduced herself and said she was a fan of my comedy and had a question that stumped me. And the question she asked was, uh, she said, during the interview with Helene, I made some comment about how much I love story and how a strong story really matters to me, and, uh, and I don't like things that have a sloppy story. And she said, is there any connection between how I love story and my approach to my own comedy. And I was totally flummoxed. Uh, and it, and I was enough, I thought, I'm not used to people asking me questions that leave me speechless. Uh, I tend to have opinions about most things, whether I know about them or not. Uh, and so I really needed to, I wanted to think about it and see if there, I could figure out an answer. And finally I did, which is that it's not, uh, it's not that I'm a, I think of myself as a storytelling type of comedian, but uh, I like I like a good story, and it and and I I feel like the story is the skeleton and the spine of a of a book or a movie. Um, like it doesn't matter how great the effects are, or how great the action is, or how great the jokes are, uh, if the underlying story doesn't make any sense to me. Like it really bothers me when I watch a movie, and I'm totally riveted, and then as soon as the credits are over, I'm like that didn't make any sense at all. And similarly, uh, my approach to my comedy is really idea driven like i i'm not someone who can do i can i just can't pull off comedy just cuz it's funny or cuz it's silly i wish i could i really respect it people who are who are just silly and and have funny ideas uh to me there needs to be some underlying idea that i have some stake in and uh i thought about this a lot when i was writing for totally biased on fx because i learned that sort of different to think about uh, like a comic premise as the like the chassis of on a car, and to think about sort of how much freight a premise can carry, and there are some things where the premise was strong enough that you could turn it into a recurring segment on a show, or you could have you know a list of things built off of that premise where you want to have a ton of examples, and there are other things where the it's a lighter premise and you have one joke and you move on to the next thing, um, and I. And most drawn to, and I feel most naturally at home for myself with comedy, where the premise, uh, the premise is strong, where there, where there's enough of an idea there that I feel like the jokes, uh, the jokes have some structure to them and have a, they have a reason to get out of bed in the morning. And I feel the same way about, and I feel like that's the similarity with why I like story. Um, so uh, thank you, uh, lady at Stageworks, for asking me a question that made me think anew about uh, about my comedy.
The NATO Sessions is a co-production of the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco and its online venue, 3200stories.org. David Kwan edits and produces the program, and Dan Wolf is the executive producer. Our theme music is by DJ Real. I'm your host, Nato Green. Follow me on Twitter at Nato Green. Check out my stand-up comedy at The Business every Wednesday night at the Darkroom Theater in the Mission District. For more information about the NATO sessions and to receive new episodes as they become available, go to 3200stories.org. Thanks for listening.